This is The Guardian. Today, the undercover camps where British teenagers are being sent to be re-educated. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we start, I want to let you know that in this episode, we talk about both physical and mental abuse, which you might find distressing. So please take care when you're listening. It was quite happy, socialised with my friends, going to parties, just the very normal teenager. Me and my mom, we clashed about school and the types of things I'd be wearing, ripped jeans, skirts and maybe tops that maybe showed a bit of cleavage. She just said that it's not in our culture, it's not in our religion, she would be very upset about it. I said, you can't tell me what to do. This is a teenager we're calling for Dumo to protect her identity. She lives with her mum, who moved to the UK from Somalia before Fadumo was born. Like lots of mums and their kids, they clash sometimes. But as Fadumo was coming towards the end of her GCSEs last year, their relationship was getting increasingly tense. Sometimes it would result in her telling me to leave the house and not come back. Our relationship was quite strained. I could not see how it was going to work. She said we were going to Dubai and I assumed it would be like a chance to reconcile. I didn't really think anything of it. I got onto the plane. I said, where are we going? And she was like, oh, we're going to Somalia for a few days just to check on our family and then we're going to go to Dubai. Day three into Somalia, I found a ticket that had been scheduled for the following year and hers was earlier than mine. I just said to her, like, what is your plan here? Like, what are you doing? And she said, oh, um, since you wanted to make it back to the UK for results day, I did like a flexible open return ticket. And then I said, hmm, well, that's a bit weird. One night we went out to eat and then afterwards, we were driving back and I noticed we were getting further away from the city. The lights, there weren't as many lights as there was. And then the road started becoming a lot bumpier. The car ride was just deadly silent. My mom, an auntie and the man that was driving the car, nobody was talking to me. I just realised that something was wrong. Fadumo had arrived at what's sometimes called a re-education camp, where supposedly wayward teenagers and young adults are being sent by their parents and guardians. These centres have appeared across Somalia, though they're not registered with the authorities. And what's happening inside their walls is very troubling. They call themselves like a wooden school block. It looks like a prison. There's cell doors. It does the same job.
I remember the very last thing that I said to her is, where are we going? And it was just dead and silent. It was just silence. She didn't tell me where I was going. She didn't say any of that. I was told to wait there. It was basically like, hand over me your phone. I refused, so one of them took the liberty to actually go into my bra and go get it whilst holding the gun. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the Somali re-education centres where British teenagers are being beaten and chained. Nimo Omar, you've been working for more than a year on an investigation into how some young British Somalis are being sent to Somalia to be, in inverted commas, re-educated. It's part of an ethos known as Dukhan Alice. What's the thinking behind it? The practice of sending young people home to their countries that their parents were from or that they perhaps were born in is something that has been going on across cultures for quite a long time. It's a way in, I think, a lot of parents' minds for children to become reacquainted with their roots, with their faith, with their cultural backgrounds. It can be quite innocuous. It could be like for the summer, for a few weeks, it could be a short holiday, but it often can be a lot longer. And in this story, it's a far more upsetting and nefarious phenomenon in that Kids are being sent to camps, to boarding schools with strangers to become de-Westernised as opposed to learning about their culture. It's more about unlearning what they have learned growing up in the UK, for example. There is often quite a lot of trickery to get the kids on the plane. They often tell kids that they're going on holiday to Dubai, to Abu Dhabi, to Nairobi, and then might end up in Hargeisa in Somaliland or in Mogadishu in Somalia, and their passports can be taken away, and then they're there for indefinite periods of time. So it's a feeling from parents that their children need to understand Somali culture. Yeah, yeah. Tell me then about the British Somali community, a little bit about the history. There has been some presence of Somalis in Britain for a very long time, but for the majority of the people in the UK at the moment, they probably arrived in the 90s or the 2000s after the 1991 civil war. Two million Somalis were displaced. As the civil war dragged on, Somalis experienced violence and instability on a grand scale as the country's infrastructure collapsed. Hundreds of thousands of Somalis were affected nationwide, and they left the country as economic migrants or fled as refugees. The war in 1991 fractured entire communities, families. People became so dispersed and widespread and... Most people didn't leave because they wanted to leave. They left because they had to leave. The biggest Somali community is in London. There's very big Somali communities in the West Midlands, in Birmingham, in Coventry, in in Leicester. Generally speaking, it's in big cities across the country. Why do you think among the Somali community, speaking specifically in the UK, this idea of Dukhan Alice exists? There are multiple factors happening all at the same time that exacerbate each other. The idea of going back home is a really strong thing. And so I, I think that there is a real strong sense of like, 
not wanting to give that up. Somali is a, is a Muslim majority country. Almost all Somalis are Muslim. And so there is a dual narrative of you have to keep your faith and your religion very, very close to you, but you also have to speak the language. You have to have an understanding of where your parents came from. You would be expected to dress to a certain level of modesty. You would be expected to adhere to most of the tenets of your faith, and that would include not drinking and not taking drugs. Mental health is the other kind of elephant in the room. The expectation is that is a Western phenomenon. You don't get depressed, you don't get anxious, and any sign of that, it's a massive taboo. There is the underlying issue of alienation in the countries that they have developed homes in. This is the parents I'm talking about. And also a fear of cultural corruption, a fear of cultural loss, a fear of linguistic loss that people really are terrified of. All of this combined together creates a space where something like this could happen. When did you first become aware that British Somali teenagers and young people were being sent to Somalia for this reason? I knew people in my own life who were around and then all of a sudden they had just disappeared. It was just like they, they've gone back to Somalia for six months, perhaps for, for a year. And I wanted to know what actually happened once they got there. And I became aware of these centres once I started actually investigating the story. And what you found out was that some young people are going to these centres and being physically and mentally abused by the people running them. What I realised is that there is a, a broad spectrum of abuse that is happening in these spaces. Um, punishment is doled out liberally and that can range from the beatings, and it can be beatings by multiple people on one person at the same time, solitary confinement, like putting people in one designated room that is what was described to me as almost like something from a horror film, like completely dark, young people being shackled and chained in various uncomfortable positions, sleep deprivation tactics, restricting food, restricting the ability to go to the bathroom, all these details are so horrific, but um, the other element is the real psychological abuse that they experience, the verbal degradation on a daily basis about your parents, they don't love you, that's why you've been sent here, no one cares about you, no one knows that you're here, this is just where you're going to be forever, just get used to it. And one lawyer said it was basically these are detention centres, it's worse than prison. And do you have any sense of how many British Somalis have been sent to these re-education centres? The young women that I spoke to basically said that in their centre there was up to 50 people. And from what I understand, there could be up to hundreds of British citizens in these places. These centres began appearing, it seems, in the last decade. The collapse in any kind of real education system and also 
health service in Somalia meant that there was a massive gap that was being filled by privatized institutions and organizations that were running outside of the law. They're run by individual people. They charge up to $300 to $500 a month per head for boarding and for food. And it's basically a for-profit business. Over the years, the number of them have increased because there has been, it seems, a rising demand for people who want to send their children out. It seems to be a very, very lucrative business for a lot of people. What are the people running these centres promising that they'll achieve? How are they selling this to parents? They sell this to parents by basically saying, what we will do is get your child on the straight and narrow. We will de-westernise them, which means that they will get out any rebellious, hard-headedness, waywardness, whatever problem that the parent is sending their child away for, whether it is drinking alcohol or doing drugs or even just having a relationship with someone that their parents don't approve of. These centres say that we will be able to connect your child through a strict dose of religious learning and also really hard discipline. I think a really big side of it is word of mouth. I've seen some of the Facebook pages that exist it can be anything from quite a blank page that just has a number on it to quite an elaborate page with videos young people saying that this is such a good experience for me i'm becoming a better person i'm learning about my faith i'm learning about my roots Fadumo, tell me what it was like inside that camp then. Who was there? I was the youngest person there. Um, a lot of the other people there were in their teens and these people came from the UK, Sweden, the United States of America, like mostly Western countries. People had been sent there because they may have been taking drugs or maybe they didn't get married to the person that they were supposed to get married to or but mostly just disobeying their parents and doing things they shouldn't really be doing in the eyes of their parents. And were you getting any education in there? No. As much as I completely detest my mum for what she did, she was under the impression that I was doing things like science and maths alongside Islamic classes. So you were getting the Islamic classes. What happened if you, in inverted commas, didn't behave yourself? They would call one of the men that worked there. They would tie you up. Um, so they would put like chains on your feet and your hands. And they would send you to this room in there. And they used to call it like City Plus. And City Plus is like a really famous hotel in Somalia. The place you were actually being sent to was like this derelict kitchen. It was like rats and there was no windows for any light. There was no toilets or anything. So you just left here and... Um, you know, it's not a nice place to be. So they'd just leave you in there? Yeah, they wouldn't take you to the toilet. They'd very rarely bring you food. Um, they just completely neglect you. I 
And reading Nimmo's article and speaking to her, I know she's heard from other people who got physically abused in these places as well. Did that ever happen to you? Yeah, a few times. And then I think after a while, I just managed to just conform. I was so tired of, you know, being hurt. And I also realised, like, what if these people do do something to me and what's going to happen to me? So deep down that I don't believe in anything that they're telling me or because what they were telling you are, is in a very extreme form of Islam. It's not really a true representation of it. So I know in myself that they will never brainwash me in that aspect. And it, in regards to culture, they will never change me. I'm still the same person I am. It was a very futile attempt to try and bring me closer to something. Gosh, yeah, your strength of spirit must be incredible. How long did you end up having to stay in there for? So I was in the end of July, basically, up until the end of November, early December. Did anybody try and contact you from home, like your friends or teachers or other family members? There were friends who contacted the embassy and things like that. Embassy was quite useless. They didn't really do anything to help. They said that I should some way make my way to Nairobi, which I don't really know how I'm supposed to do that as a 16-year-old who hasn't even seen the country and it's quite dangerous and volatile. The kind of abuse that was being described, it's kind of hard to put into words what it's like hearing someone who's still processing explain that one in particular was that she said that she was chained to a radiator but was shackled in a way that they knew she wouldn't be able to sleep and hearing just the abject fear of experiencing something like that the thought of someone thinking that they might die in this place hearing that was really profound to me yeah because you don't know if anybody's trying to make contact with you I could imagine how disorientating it is. I mean, you, to lose track of time and be stuck there with your abusers, essentially. And some of the women you spoke to had suffered sexual abuse as well, hadn't they? Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the young women I spoke to said that she was sexually assaulted in one of those moments where she was in solitary confinement and was left alone and was tied up and stuff and someone that she thought was being kind to her and leaving her food ended up abusing her and uh, mistreating her. She was like, not many people will tell you about it, but a lot of the people there were abused. And predominantly it's teenagers being sent away, but are younger children and young adults being sent away as well? Um, yeah, so there is no age range for these centres. It's very clear that the primary incentive is profit because one of the really striking stories that I heard from one of the people that I spoke to was her recalling that she saw a 70-year-old woman who had dementia and who what? couldn't, her family couldn't take care of her anymore. And that's where she stays until, you know, her life ends. It generally is 15-year-olds up to like young adults, but nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds, really young people have been sent there. It really is, in the truest sense of the word, it's absolutely shocking when you read what those people tell you. There's the physical abuse that they've suffered. 
Do you think that a lot of parents just have no idea that that's happening? I don't doubt that the parents understand that there will be some kind of physical disciplining. This is something that they experienced growing up. This is something that a lot of young Somalis experienced growing up. But I think that the extremeness of the abuse, the the shackling, the solitary confinement, the lack of food, there's a difference between physical disciplining, which a lot of people would disagree with in and of itself, and what one person told me about, which is four or five people beating you up at the same time, a young teenager and grown men beating you up. I don't think anyone does imagine that 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 is what will happen to their child in these spaces. When the young people, the, the children return home, the two general reactions that I've heard from them is that their parents either deny their experiences altogether or they get into a kind of catatonic shock Mm. and a profound sense of regret and I imagine that that then comes with um, a lot of shame and a a fear that you will get into trouble and so I found it extremely difficult to talk to parents. It's also a, a real a communal defensiveness about this is going to make us look really bad and therefore we can't talk about it and therefore fewer people know actually what's going on in these centres and then more parents unwittingly send away their children. Has anybody ever died being sent to one of these centres? Yeah, definitely found the story of one American 17-year-old who was from Minneapolis and he was sent to Puntland in the northeast of the country and his family basically cited that they wanted to get him away from gangs and they wanted him to learn more about his culture but what ended up happening was that he was tortured and killed there were photographs of a really really badly beaten body he was smart he was asking questions he was very inquisitive and because of that they tortured and killed him it was just a really really horrifying and upsetting story. Nimo, the UK Foreign Office advises against people travelling to Somalia. How safe is it for young people to go there right now? It's not safe for people to go to Somalia. In particular, Mogadishu is really, really unsafe. It's still an active conflict zone. There isn't really any kind of consular help. If if you end up stuck out there without a passport, if someone is holding you there against your will, it can be really, really hard to get back out. The British government has not made it known to me that there is any kind of uh, specific initiative or anything specific that's being done to deal with this problem, even though this is affecting British citizens abroad. Is that what's made it possible for these centres to thrive unchecked? I think so, because once you're there, the only way you can leave is with the consent of your parents. And another part of this is that all communication to the outside world is heavily monitored. They don't have mobile phones. They don't really have any way to communicate with anyone from back home and when they do call their parents it's monitored. 
Did you manage to make contact with any of the people who run these centres? I reached out to the two centres that I named in, in the article and they did not get back to me. Nimmo, it sounds like this system may, in legal terms, be trafficking. What have the lawyers that you've been speaking to said about that? It does sound like trafficking, but it doesn't quite hit the legal threshold for trafficking, although it hits a lot of them. I think it's further complicated by the fact that a lot of these young people don't want to report their parents effectively to the authorities, both for emotional reasons that they just can't do that to their parents, but also because of the community backlash that could happen. I've not spoken to anyone who very seriously wanted to do that to their parents. A lot of the young people who get sent to these centres are enrolled in UK schools. Is this something that teachers are being trained to look out for? It's hard to say, but basically, I don't think teachers are really being trained to look out for this, which is odd considering the amount of attention that's been paid to forced marriage, for example, and FGM. And that's what I found with one of the young people I spoke to, despite this young person being known to social services, everyone around should be keeping quite a close eye but was able to disappear for three or four months and come back and no one asked where she had been or what had happened to her. Coming up, how can you readjust to life in the UK after going through this kind of experience? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by better help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. (laughs) 
Nimmo, you've spoken to people who thankfully have been able to return to the UK. What did they tell you about what that was like to actually come back? There was, on the one side, dealing with the emotional ramifications of what a relationship with your parents looks like after you experience a level of betrayal that is like that. But basically, they've all said that this has fundamentally and profoundly changed the way that they see the world and they don't think that they will be getting over this. They've been struggling to access mental health services um, Mm. as well. One way of starting to process what they've been through would be to talk about it. Are people finding outlets to connect with each other and share experiences with other people who've been through it? Quite a lot of people online have started sharing videos on YouTube and on TikTok. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hello everyone and welcome back to my channel. Speaking out about their experiences. Regardless of whether they chose to go to Somalia or whether they were manipulated into going to Somalia, it doesn't matter which one it is, okay? It's halat. If you're not going to stay there with your child so you can see, hear everything that is being done, that is being said, okay? Where if you hear something out of line, you could be like, hello, not my child, not today, right? If you go onto Reddit and you type in Dagan Alice, you will see dozens of threads where people are like talking about I think I might be being sent away. What do I do? If I do, like, who can I contact? And no, I think that there's a sense of responsibility to each other. Fadumo, once you left the camp and come back to the UK, were you able to talk to other people about what had happened? I'd say other than the people that I was in there with, probably not. I felt like nobody could really understand because I feel like if someone had told me this like three or four years ago, I think you're having a laugh. Like it doesn't seem real. So when did you first tell somebody about what had happened to you? Um, I'd say when um, Nemo reached out to me and um, at um, a doctor's appointment in terms of mental health support that's the only reason why I told him a little bit about it you you wanted some help uh, mentally for what you'd been through yeah and what was the doctor's response um he referred me to cams but um they had like one consultation with me and then after that I'd never heard from them again that's the young person's mental health service isn't it yeah okay and and then did you manage to talk to any friends or family I probably only spoke to one person about it. When I did come back, I just wanted to forget about it. But I feel like in instances like that, it's not really smart to just forget about it because it will creep up on you. Things that you don't deal with do come back to want you. How are things with your mum now? I mean, I understand why she did what she did, but I'll never agree with it. She doesn't talk about it when I do try and talk about it. So I feel like that quite upsets me. Obviously, she didn't know that that was going to happen. But at the same time, I feel like there should be some sort of common sense there. You don't know where you're sending your child to. If I was a mother, I wouldn't 
send my kid to some random place that I've never been to and hope that these people take care of her. What do you want people to know about these camps? That these places operate every single day and nobody's doing anything about it. One of the pieces of advice that I got was to go to an embassy in Nairobi, but it's the thing where, how would I get there? As a 16-year-old child, you know, there's terrorists in the country as well, and it's not really a safe place for women. So if you know that that's the kind of society that I'm in, like, where is the support? Fadumo, you've been through an unimaginable experience, but it sounds like you're very determined to get on with your life. How are you thinking about your future in the next few years? I'm hoping to go to university and move out somewhere that I could just get away from everything and be around like nature. I do like nature a lot. Somewhere I can just go and just think. We're really grateful to Fadumo and everyone else who spoke to us about what's happened to them and to Nimo. If you're concerned that someone you know is at risk of being coerced or taken abroad without their consent, you can contact the police or speak to a trusted adult. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans for free any time of the day or night. Their number is 116123. And their email address is joe, that's J-O, at samaritans.org. You can read Nimmo's investigation at theguardian.com. And I also recommend signing up to First Edition, which is the newsletter that she co-edits for The Guardian. It's free and it gives you a really useful primer on everyday's news. You can subscribe to that at theguardian.com forward slash first edition. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams and Cleetzia Sala. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo and the executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.